Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we celebrated two Surfing Nash milestones, 20,000 downloads on Buzzsprout, and one year on that platform. The episode itself included excerpts of five interviews with a total of seven surfers. This weekend, we are offering these interviews in full. In this conversation, Donna Cryer joined Louise Campbell and me to discuss not only her background on the podcast, but also how she sees the role of patient advocate, why she believes we should rethink the definition of, quote, evidence, unquote, and rational trial design, and the story behind some of our big podcast moments. These are longer than your typical weekend conversations, but between the energy, insight, and crazy laughter, the time should just slip by. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. At the risk of being a little bit corny, what we have is like three quarters of the band. Louise and I are here with Donna. We'll have Steven around for a different session at a different time. Hey, Donna, it's been a while. Yes, maybe hours or something. <laughs> By the time this airs, you'll, you'll get the point. Donna and I did a re-record of her highly successful but auditorily challenged emceeing of the episode while I was away last week. And then I spent the last day trying to patch her voice in. By now, you all know how badly or how well it turned out. We'll that was see fun. how it works. It's important for us to challenge ourselves, you know, Mianda hosting, you on the digital editing. I mean, when you stop learning, you stop growing. That's a very upbeat way of putting the thing I always say, which is that as you get older, when you're losing 10,000 brain cells an hour, you got to keep your mind pried open. But but they both get to the same place. You got to learn something new. Hey, Louise, how are you this evening? I'm very well. I've just got in from work. So I'm rushing in to check in with Donna and see what she's been up to. She's been giving jabs all day. Yes, we've moved to Westfield now, which is the Olympic Park shopping centre. So a bigger footfall of the demographic that we want obviously, which is the younger generation, which is great news. And they're rocking up. They're desperate for a second jab, but coming too early for that. Now Louise gets to do something no one in the U.S. does anymore, which is say no to somebody who's asking for a shot. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit, Donna, about how you got started with this podcast. You've played three or four different roles over the life of it. You went from guest to band member to guest to MC. Of all the people who are not on the podcast, I would say you are brought up more during episodes than anybody else's. <laughs> I, I like to be provocative. So thank you for the feedback that I've been successful. I think I remember how we engaged this in the first place, but what do you recall? Dr. Harrison brought up the idea of participating. I'm so excited that I've, I've had the opportunity to work outside this with original members like Peter Traber as well. And like all good friendships, it's hard to imagine a time or a world before it's part of the band, before I was part of the podcast. And it's hard to recount, even though it's been just one year since launch. Yes. Slightly more, but yeah. So this is what I recall. I recall Louise suggesting that maybe we should do an episode about International Nash Day. That was right at the beginning of her time. And I said, gee, I'm not sure I know people who are involved with that. And Stephen said, well, well, why don't you call Donna? And that was about what happened. So all three of us were in different ways, part of the process by which she joined us. I like to extend the mythology that all roads lead to Donna Cryer. Possibly they do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was the first one. And then... I'm trying to remember, when did you officially join the band? Was that for Easel originally? Perhaps. It is really an honor to be a part of this discussion because so often people think that 
patients or patient advocates wouldn't have anything to bring to a conversation that's about the strategic priorities or about the investment or about the business of drug development and, you know, that our, our delicate sensibilities might be offended by learning somehow that some people are making money from this or that uh, there is there's business involved. I remember years ago when I was a chair of the board of an organization and I had asked for a certain level of partnership with a medical society and they deliberated for a very long period of time, several, several weeks, and they came back and they told me that no, no, because patients would be too upset to learn that their doctors had different opinions. I was like, it, it's no secret to us. And so to be included as a peer, as an equal partner, as an equal voice for my lived experience, my professional experience, and all the parts that make me a patient and a patient advocate and the leader of a patient advocacy organization, I really want to thank you. And I want to thank all of the other participants in the podcast for welcoming me and my perspectives and not pulling their punches as well. So that's why this is one of the things that I make time to do. I think it's important to this space. I think it's also important in shaping people's perceptions about what a patient advocate is and the expertise that we bring and where we belong. And that's with the seat at the table, just like everyone else. I don't know if this is praising you or damning you with faint praise, but you know so much more about anything having to do with this than I do, which is praise, except that I don't know that much, so it might just be faint praise. But <laughs> I don't think anybody can question your, your gravitas around all these issues. And, and, and also, by the way, you're able to get things done. That must be odd. <laughs> it is interesting and increasingly not as well tolerated at it as it used to be in my, in, in my younger days. But I think that recognizing Recognizing the sort of pioneering role that I've had across my career. And I, I do consider it a great privilege that many of the roles I sit in as a patient representative, whether it's on a board or within a federal agency or within a research network, did not exist. And so it is within my career that we have pushed to create these roles. And so I do feel an obligation to do it well so that we let the next patient <laughs> sit in the seat and have a voice and perspective and an obligation to train and equip patients to to do this work well and, and not just be warming a seat. And so it's it's interesting as a, as a person of color because I, I tell my parents, sometimes with trepidation, that in a way, this is my civil rights movement, the patient advocacy movement to be taken seriously and to have my voice and to have representation. It's only built on the back of others, for people of color, for women, for people with disabilities, that I can build this patient movement. On, on top of this, but it's a great privilege and honor to do this work and hopefully to do it well so that it's not just a trend or a passing fad, but is really transformational in terms of how we do healthcare and how we do the business of healthcare and the business of healthcare research. And so it's an honor to do these to do all these different things. So Louise, I have two more questions, but I want you to go first uh, or, or take the next five minutes and ask whatever you'd like. I was just going to ask as a result of that, because Donna has so many fingers in so many pies. I completely applaud all of that and appreciate the time that you give to the podcast. It sits uniquely in a field or it did at the beginning and it's fantastic you give your time. But is there something that you haven't done yet that you really want to do? Because you really drive this space in a disease area that is still fighting, despite how big and large it is in the world, just to even be acknowledged. So what is it that you really want to do that you have not done yet? 
because you've started so many things. So besides a TikTok video <laughs> that has come up with my team three times today, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to get on that. You know, I still am staring down some institute directors to say liver, say it. Say it. I'm watching you say it. I dare you to do another interview without saying the word liver. As much as we have achieved and as much as this podcast has helped achieve in terms of awareness, we're still at just the very beginning, just at infantile stages. Patients still go into offices and their doctors haven't heard of NASH. There are still reports that we see about obesity and diabetes and public health that don't mention NASH. And so I had hoped by this stage that we would be beyond the just aspiration to be in the conversation. But I think we're still there. Yes, there are a lot of, we need our celebrity. We need our, you know, Elizabeth Taylor moments. We need our WHO forum. There are definitely things that we have specific goals within GLI to do. But I think it really starts, we'll know when we have arrived at a certain point when you don't have to think about it, that you know fatty liver disease or NASH is included in, in the report in the data request, in the newspaper article, cited as the example in TV show to a news report or a popular magazine. That's when we'll know we have achieved a sort of first level at which we build everything else on top of. And so, you know, the word awareness, I tell my team, like, that's fuzzy. Give me specifics, give it punch, give it power. I'm aware of a lot of things that I don't do. (laughs) Um, So how do we have inclusion with urgency is what we're, we're striving for at, at this at this stage. Yeah, and I think I was very struck with what you were saying at the very outset about being part of those forums and people still challenging you as the one person who sits there as the patient, the advocate, an expert within her own clinical disease, all of those things. And the science side still doubts. I suppose, that forum and that evidence that you bring. And I think I I was part of a conversation yesterday where one of the reasons then they don't want to look at fatty liver disease is they don't want to upset the patient who you give the false positive to, that they might have a disease. Now, maybe it's just me coming from a wellness side now, but as an advocate for people, I'd rather apologise for saying that we thought we found a disease, but we didn't. And that's really good news then turn around years later and said, well, we didn't tell you this, we didn't look because we didn't want to upset you at the time, but I'm sorry, you've now got liver cancer. Because it goes back to that conversation you had with Vlad, that it doesn't matter if nobody looks, then I'm dead, essentially. But I want somebody to look. I don't want people to silo these different diseases. So what you started off with at the beginning and, and looking at the reasons that you do the podcast and you do the GLI Live and you do all of those wonderful things is to take that out. And you couldn't be more powerful because of who you are and what you do for that. And yet it's still, from a medical perspective, really pushed back which I do find frustrating. I can understand where they're coming from because we see it all of the time. But you're the one person, as Roger said, it's very, very difficult to push back at. <laughs> Dog with a bone. <laughs> so I'm going, to t- I'm going to take a risk. I'm going to use a noun to describe the perspective that people show when they look at Donna or when people ask me where I got my graduate degrees from. And I tell them, well, my last natural science course was high school biology. And they go, oh, no, that can't be. And I go, well, yeah, actually it is. You know, it's medicine, but it's not rocket science. And by the way, I'm not even sure rocket science is rocket science anymore. My point is that I think there's a certain condescension that people believe they've got this credential. And the credential is proof of that they must know more. 
and they must know better as compared to merely knowing differently. I am not a neonatologist, but I don't believe that uh, any of the folks that we've had on the podcast emerged from the womb uh, knowing everything about hepatology. Uh, they had to learn it somewhere. And they were taught in school, often in the same classes that I was in. I just have the extra advantage of also having lived with the disease, having experienced it, having you know walked around in a body in liver failure 24 hours a day and being able to note the symptoms and, and the effects and experiencing the drugs in situ, if you'd like to do in Latin or in vivo. But I remember talking with one of my husband's medical school classmates and, you know, he's a very learned government official at NIH. And he said to us, he said, yes, there's an information asymmetry between doctors and patients. And I said, yes, we know so much more than you do. And love it, love it, love it, love I, it. I, I think that's Absolutely what, they, perfect. what they don't appreciate. But I, I do have a high degree of respect for physicians. And sometimes, it, you know, they're like, well, if you don't believe us, you don't come across, you don't believe in evidence. I do. But I think that medical professionals would do well with a certain amount of humility in terms of how they derived that knowledge, the limitations of the current evidence generation process and the limited data sources from which they draw, for example. So if we just speak within the scientific perspective, there are several limitations. And so I think if those were acknowledged, that the patient contribution to filling in those gaps would be more welcomed. So not even on, on, on my terms, uh, I'm not talking about hope or feelings or whatever. If you don't believe in that, that's fine. But just on your own the scientific turf, we have so much to contribute if equipped and we could work in partnership together. That's really what I'm seeking. I think that's absolutely key because when we want things moved in healthcare, we get patients to complain. We get patients to make suggestions. We get patients to push the right buttons. And I think just before we started recording, you were saying you were pushing the right buttons, but it's only when we want it and we want to engage it. That is highly powerful. And I just wondered whether or not you thought that science has moved so far in NASH over the last few years that it's speeding up and it's it's absolutely fabulous. But do you think the science in medicine, and particularly NASH and NAFLD at the moment, holds back development in the real instigation and implementation of this evidence? Because we always want more evidence, but this is a disease that is now one in four of the global population. This is a disease that is moving more quickly than we can do the science, given the length of research projects. Is there a time, and I've seen it recently in John and Jeff Lazarus's article is that we have to take a leap of faith at some stage and implement all of the best that we've got earlier to try and make a difference for younger generations. Do you think it holds it back? I think that it is inefficient and not appropriately allocated, the, the research resources. I say this in the context to particularly look at look at COVID, had so many conversations with cancer medical societies, transplant medical societies, infectious disease societies about the urgency with which patients need to make decisions today. Can I leave my house today? Um, and so, yes, the information is incomplete. It is evolving. It is changing rapidly. But if I make a wrong decision, either mask or don't mask, I either get a you know a third shot or don't get a third shot today, I may risk contracting a disease that would kill me in a week or two weeks. And so with NASH, and 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 this is in several diseases. States as, as well. I think a, a, a fundamentally investor-initiated research portfolio with no centralization, with no real consensus around these are the biggest problems that matter. 
Let's solve them as efficiently as possible, having platforms that efficiently allocate patients with concurrent diseases to the right trial. Are we doing the right research in national nutrition, national exercise? I would say, no, we're not. And so that's why we are not arriving at the answers as quickly as we could be and having as complete a set of answers that patients need to adequately prevent the disease, to get diagnosed as quickly as possible, you know, and to be treated or, or, or managed as effectively as possible. You know, when I was talking on one of the IND panels about, you know, my favorite non-invasive diagnostic is uh, after listening to all these conversations is a tape measure. Well, I mean, if you're an imaging company, you don't want to hear about a tape measure being the most effective thing. It's a start though. And we think about scalability to the numbers of people involved. If everyone did measure their waist circumference, then actually there would be a lot more people who would need uh, follow-up imaging and lab work and all of the things to really define the disease. But the resistance to have the conversation about what are community-based, people-centered, scalable interventions around prevention and diagnosis is holding the field back. And so we need to, I don't believe it's going to be a reset, so I won't, I won't even ask for that. But we will be very pointed in our advocacy about where the field needs to go. And I think that the patient advocacy is not fragmented in this space since we had the opportunity to grow it from scratch. We have had the discipline between GLI and the Fatty Liver Foundation and the Easel ILF and, and, and you know, everyone we've appreciated the dangers of fragmentation and of being split and divided by researchers or industry or whomever, and really staying on path about what are the essential principles, what are the problems that need to be solved, and we need everybody to go along with us. That has been, as someone who has worked cross-patient advocacy in different fields and analyzed it and landscaped it and tried to mediate between different organizations, this is refreshing, but it's hard work. And I really appreciate all of my fellow advocates in this space for working together so well and keeping our eyes on the patient and the patient needs and the things that are best for the field. And I think that is how we will succeed. First of all, all that's great. And I have two very selfish podcast-oriented questions I want to ask, and then one, maybe two observations. Best thing you've been part of on this podcast since, since you joined it? I liked the opportunity to defend patient advocacy from comments at Nashtag since I couldn't go and pull people off the stage. Um, so <laughs> I, I appreciate that opportunity. That was my favorite. That was my favorite moment. Louise and I have both observed that getting to watch your face, even though we don't do video here, the same thing. while that moment was going on, we've commented on it several times between us uh, subsequently. The thing you really want the podcast to do in the next year that you haven't seen yet. I'd love to talk to payers. I, I'd love to have that conversation on the podcast. What do they need to know? What are they going to do about this? How are they? How are they being a part of the solution? You know, Naeem asks all the time about that, and he's absolutely right. And uh, different thought, different day, but I, t I totally agree. An observation and a question, okay? I think it's an interesting thing. The people who feel empowered, the consumers who feel empowered, are the wellness consumers, not the patients per se. 
And doctors can deal with empowered patients a lot better than, than others. So you get patients who you interview and they have a disease and they didn't tell the doctor about it because, you know, the doctor's really important. You know that. I'm not just sure why would she care about my little issue? He care about my little issue. That's not what medicine is. Doctors don't see themselves that way. The people who are most likely to do whatever they've got to do to get what they need to get to maintain their health are the wellness people, not the illness people. And as I'm learning from my pal Louise, they want to spend as little time as possible in front of doctors. Yeah. So I think there's a duality we need to figure out how to bridge there for you to have as much success as you should have. And as your work entitles you to have, if there's any entitlement in this, doing the things that you do. I don't know how to do it, but that, that's just a thought I've had listening today. Louise, did you have a thought before I weigh in? I'd love it. <laughs> I've changed, not so much changed because obviously I have a health side as well as that. But I go back to what you said. It is very difficult to change the thinking in the space. But when you introduce something to people that they never, ever considered that they had such power on, it's very empowering to me to get that feedback from a wellness space. They drive it more than the patient advocacy in the context of what you drive a patient's. But the patients that we see in healthcare, and one of the reasons that I developed Towers on Health, are the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. And yes, that's the cost. The big cost saving is the prevention and driving people to be more self-aware. We've discussed this before on education. And what I see in every single person that we introduce this to from a wellness, oh, I can manage this. Oh, every single person changes their diet. But every single person then sends it, tells somebody else about it. Or there's five or six people talking about it outside because they're all part of a group. The absolute interest in it when it's introduced to a different space is something that's really invigorating. And maybe that's something we should consider. We're not targeting the patients in one arm. We're targeting people not to be patients. Nobody should get liver disease. When we talk about 90% of liver disease being preventable, reversible, but also the bi-directional diseases that it's connected with. And I think it is very hard to get that traction in wellness but it, there's no point going to the gym if you then fill with sugar and you still have abnormal liver tests because but you didn't understand why and when you explain those reasons people put two and two to it it clicks so it's a, it's a really different momentum and something that empowers me more and more every time I engage with somebody the hard nut to crack is the healthcare side mm -hmm. because there is so much resistance to different things as you said so it is a completely different parallel pushing that side so that everybody wants a fiber scan and everybody wants to avoid diabetes and nobody should get liver cancer because I know more and more friends now who have friends who've got relatives who diagnosed with liver cancer. It is a growing number of acquaintances that shouldn't be within my field except of my professional field. That's where I'm now trying to get that traction. Healthcare is the minority, but it's where everything's pigeonholed. So yeah, Roger's right. It is a combination of when we go back to the avocado that was discussed at um, Easel recently, where we're driving it from an advocacy perspective is the ones who are in need now rather than the, the and which is that basically that olive that um, he was describing. And what we need to try and move is the main part of that avocado to move and say, right, this is we demand this. 20 years ago, you couldn't get a blood pressure machine to do your own blood pressure at home. Now, lots of people have that to manage their care. I would see in the future that everybody would be able to manage their own liver health because they become aware of it. And that's what gets fed back to me now from a wellness perspective when we introduce it to people who didn't know they had a liver problem and suddenly found out they had high liver fat. 
they go out and they know what they want to tweak to do it and it's dead easy at an earlier level so i think that that's where i would be thinking and coming in from now really seeing those both sides i, I would have never thought i'd have got the impetus in wellness that i'm seeing even though it's small because i'm a small company and this is a new venture and it's hard as you say to start bucking the trends of sitting but it's really invigorating to see how much people want to know about their liver and how much it can really change their health and oh i can change my child's health yes you can and i can change my brother and sisters yeah people are angry people feel betrayed when they find out that they have liver disease and that there was something that they could have done about it they're like why why didn't you why didn't you tell me you know i was wasn't even really teasing when I said, what what is left for me to do? A TikTok video. I think it's really about meeting people where they are and making this a part of people's normal lives. I I don't have any expectation that everybody's supposed to come to me at globalliver.org to read resources and and have an epiphany. Um, It's about me going where people are, where they receive information, make it very easy and digestible for them to, you know, people people are, are busy. You know, we have a conversation with my team. I'm like, write for people and make it interesting. I'm like, I could go watch Netflix. Why am I supposed to read your piece on histology? I'm not. So write so that people would be interested and spend the time on this. Look, um, in, today, in today's world, right? Attention yeah. is the scarcest resource, right? Exactly. We're working to do that. This podcast is one piece of it. July Live is one piece of it. Tweeting is one piece of it. We're really excited. I'm you know, not sure about the, you know, the timing of this podcast, but we're preparing a, one of our A3 alums who's been invited to participate in a CNN town hall meeting with, uh, with President Biden. And so it's about planting all of those seeds and reaching out into communities and having more people who are equipped to talk about liver health to be able to do that at their kitchen tables with their family, uh, with their friends and neighbors, and, and making it just a normal part of every conversation, learning from, uh, you know, our, our friends in heart health and breast cancer and, and others. But it takes an investment to do that. This doesn't just like magically happen from the you know, 48 hours uh, Donna Cryer is able to, you know, knit out of a day. You know, it happens with a lot of investment. It happens because, my, you know, my team is growing larger. You know, our volunteer network is growing larger and we're using it efficiently and effectively to do all of these things to turn things into shareable contents when we really want to write a white paper on something. We need the white papers and we need the publications, but we also need something in blackdoctor.org, um, you know, reaching millions of people or in AARP newsletters. You know, it, we, it's our responsibility to make it easy for people to do the right thing for them. And that's about from education to global food supply and the choices that people have in front of them to be able to make. So how can we make it as easy as possible for people to do the liver healthy thing? Maybe maybe just because I'm slow, I'm, I'm five minutes behind this conversation, but I'm struck by the idea that if you go to your doctor and learn that you have a fatty liver, your doctor believes that people don't follow diets and he doesn't have any drugs. So therefore, he can't help you. Therefore, it's no big deal. If I can't be a success, why am I worrying about this? And doctors also believe that patients don't follow diets, right? Because the, the problem is that the doctor's opinions are overly shaped by the ones who don't, because what you're shaped by is frequency and recency. So if you're a hepatologist, you're seeing the people who've really fouled themselves up and can't get themselves better, for the most part. That is, they are the ones who can't keep a diet. And you see more of them, you see them more often. And therefore, that tends to disproportionately shape your view. So one of my, what can we do with the podcast thoughts that I never had before about 15 minutes ago is I wonder if it makes sense to start bringing people on to tell the stories of their journey from patient to, from sick to well, if you will, 
and and self and particularly if we can find stories where something's doctors did actually made a difference along the way, or the healthcare system did made a difference along the way. I think that's an important angle to have a role for the doctor, the health system into it, because otherwise, I think at least in my experience, there's a tendency to sort of dismiss it. Oh, well, Donna, that's just you. Oh, well, you know, Wayne, that's just you. Other patients, my other patients can't do it. And so if there is, you know, a demonstrated role for primary care endocrinologists or or gastroenterologists or or hepatologists, I think that's better. I mean, everybody wants to be successful. The point I was going to make from a lawyer's perspective is we have an obligation to, we give our client the advice and let them choose. We don't do as much I don't know if, if any, I don't think it's ethical for, for us to, you know, to just withhold the options for our patient and the information and just patronizingly make the make the choices for them based on what we think they are or are not capable of doing or are or not willing to do. And, um, you know, and yet we are also are learned professionals in intermediaries, but we seem to be trained in a different ethos of the accountability ultimately lies with the person. And there are life-threatening consequences to the law. I was in criminal law, and so people could go to jail, you know, so being married to a physician and, and stepmom of physicians, I, I recognize with their whole hearts how medical professionals, you know, care about people and wanting to be successful, wanting their, their patients to be successful, wanting themselves to be successful at, at the end of the day and how much they feel it when they don't have options to give or they, they feel that they can't be successful on behalf of, of the, the people in uh, whose care they are entrusted with. However, I would counsel them to release that and to breathe and their job really is more of a coach and to provide the expertise to help people navigate and make their own decisions. That doesn't mean abandon people and just like, ah, you can do this or that. That's not that. It's it's really, you know, walking with someone. And I think, Louise, a lot of why the wellness space works better is because there is that greater sense of partnership, that greater sense of I'm working for you. I'm helping you on your journey, not you advancing my journey. And there's more frequent contact and feedback and reinforcement. You feel more connected than you do in in medicine on the healthcare side where you feel sort of processed through often. I'm I'm sure the physicians also feel rather processed through itself, but we can be in partnership to change that together. You know, in the same way, I'm often in in partnership with the medical society and the chief of medical staff and the chief of surgeon on our hospital board. We're in this together for patients with the chief nursing officer and and everything. And so we've stopped a lot of discussions that were going a different way. I say gleefully. So if you can't see my face in the podcast, I have an impish grin about how, you know, the patients and the physicians have partnered together to change the conversation within the health system. But I think that there can be more of that if you'd let us, is what I'd say for doctors. We can help make your job better and easier and more satisfying if you'd work with us and wouldn't discount our contributions either collectively or individually. You hit the nail on the head and you couldn't have described it any better because uh, I was thinking along exactly those those lines. Is It, it is that partnership. Medicine tends to be more um, paternal and direction and instruction because it's based in evidence. Why would you turn around and ignore the evidence? It's all about the evidence, whereas it is that parental we're telling you, and that comes from history, as you've said. And I think it's one of the reasons that nurses can come into conflict with doctors in the context that we are not there for the doctor. We are there as part of our code of conduct. We are the patient's advocate. We are there to represent the patient's wishes, to put in that backstop when you think, is this an appropriate 
appropriate line of action? Is this the appropriate care? That may not be what they want to hear. It may not be necessarily what we agree with, but actually we have to be on the side of the patient because it generates that conversation where we all step back a bit and we can have that conversation. We bring other people into it. It's not because we directly want to go into conflict, but it's actually because that's our role. And a lot of the time it's seen as conflict, but a lot of the time it is resolved and the patient's wishes are better portrayed and better reflected and people move on and learn from that. And I think that's where that should be going. This whole involvement, no care without a patient starts without the patient. No decision should be made without the person being involved as much as possible. You couldn't have said it better about where it comes from. And that is exactly what I see from the wellness side where people can control and they bring down their liver fat. But everybody gets a referral to a physician so that the physicians learn that this can be altered. So that whole thing of you're helping me help myself, fantastic, bring it on. I'll I'll have one of these every year or... (laughs) It is that empowerment. And, you know, a note on the evidence, because the evidence only became the evidence because somebody decided this is the question we're going to answer and we're going to do this study arranged in this way with this group of people. So the evidence only became the evidence because somebody decided to do it. And the reason we have evidence gaps is because nobody in the past asked patients what questions we wanted answered. So we can't get into this vicious circle of like, well, we can't do that because there's no evidence for that. Well, then we need to create the evidence. And so I I just, it's, it's, maddening. It's a, like a logistical solecism, as I, as I think what it is that, correct me in the show notes if I'm using the wrong term, but it's maddening. I know it's that when people say, well, there's no evidence for that. I'm like, well, you went out of your way not to create evidence for that. And again, I have to make decisions today. So what are we going to do about that? What else are we going to draw from while we recreate how we develop evidence? So let's just go full circle because some of this is right where you started, which is if you have investment-driven research decisions where the goal of the investor is to make money on a specific piece of the puzzle, and the more controlled, therefore, the lower risk it is, the happier I am with the investment, as long as the return is decent, then you've created a system where everybody's going to color within the lines, and the lines are going to get narrower over time. So it's my job to redraw the lines and to make the case for investment in the things and paths that patients care about. You know, I've, I've done many a presentation on to payers and to healthcare systems on here are all the different things that I as a, as a patient spend money on that you don't reimburse or that you could build service lines around, but you don't because you're so busy over here with inefficient, ineffective, low value stuff that currently has high margins and is the way that you used to earn money that you've been ignoring billion dollar industries and opportunities over here. So I don't mind having the conversation about, hmm, how could we construct things for the patient and still make a profit as long as we're keeping equity and access in in the conversation. But, you know, I'm an American, I'm a capitalist, I'm a Harvard graduate. So I'm happy to help you construct ways to do do well and do good at the same time. I, I don't believe that they are in as much conflict as people think they are. So listen, We could do this forever. And at some point when, if the world stays open and scary that they put ASLD in California and uh, Newsom's in the middle of shutting LA County down again. But if in fact we were all able to get to ASLD, it would be really fun just to get a bunch of us together one evening 
and do this for hours. Absolutely. I will be in Anaheim. I will Mickey be in Anaheim. Mouse ears on and everything. I might not go to the park. I will be in Anaheim. I have special reasons to be in Anaheim that I cannot yet disclose on this podcast, um, but at the liver meeting. But they are very good reasons. And I, I look forward to discussing uh, those reasons. But if Anaheim is standing, I will be standing in Anaheim. Just for everybody to know, Donna will be back with us next month where we're going to be doing something that's not quite as totally a Donna-driven agenda as yesterday was, but kind of in the neighborhood. We're going to be talking about uh, patient-focused drug development and what that means in the context of NASH. We got to pick a date for it. But now, now that I've put it on tape, we've really got to get a date for it. We do. We did set a date for recording, and we do have a date for the patient-focused drug development meeting. Now, the date for the drug development meeting is? November 4th, 2021. And we'll, pro- we'll provide more information on the recording when it comes out, but we, I can tell you, if you're listening to this, are going to make an aggressive effort to get as large an audience live as possible so people can come in and ask their questions and can actually engage the conversation. We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next Wednesday, August 4th, when Jeff Lazarus and Jorn Schottenberg join us to discuss their article comparing comprehensive care models to look for general rules we should apply to the treatment and management of mental patients. It's a fantastic article and a great conversation. I hope you join us then. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.